Jesus predicts his betrayal. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does, it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against him, he asked Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Jesus, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. There is a slaughterhouse in the villages outside the city of Cambridge. A priest who works nearby reports that when sheep are taken to the slaughterhouse to be killed, they instinctively sense that it's a bad place. There's something dangerous about it. They seem to smell the danger. So when the lorry pulls up and the workers put the gangplank up onto the back of the lorry, the sheep huddle together and refuse to move. So the workers at this slaughterhouse have devised a cunning solution to the problem. They keep one sheep on the premises, a bit like a pet, and he lives there and he's used to the place. Now this sheep doesn't mind it anymore. So they take this sheep up the plank into the lorry and then the sheep looks around and walks down the plank as happy as Larry, we might say, and the other sheep, seeing one of their own leading the way, will follow. And you know what they call that sheep? Judas. Judas. Now in our text today we see perhaps the most famous description of betrayal in all of literature. Judas Iscariot, his name will never be forgotten, it's probably not top of your list of names for a baby boy, if you're expecting one. But there's something else at work in this passage as well, something quite beautiful. John 13 shows us a great picture of love and friendship. In fact, some readers have pointed out that this whole section that Rosie just read is written from the perspective of one dearly loved friend of Jesus. So we see two aspects of relationship in our text, love and betrayal. And in the middle of those two, we have Jesus Christ. So what's this all about? Now as I've studied and meditated on this passage during the week, I've come to the conclusion that this is all about the challenge of relationships. The challenge of relationships in Jesus' ministry 
and a challenge of relationships in his church for those who follow him. We are his disciples. Now, the Bible, I want to say, is first and foremost all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's a book about God and his ways, and it's to tell us about him. And only secondarily is it a book about us, though we often want to make it about us. We tend to open the Bible and sort of ask, what is it saying to me about my life? Sometimes we struggle because we can't find any direct links. But primarily the Bible is telling us about God and his life. The whole of history is his story. And if we attend to that story, then we will find ourselves truly. A minister of a church in central London, William Taylor, talks in a, in a YouTube video about bad preaching. And he was talking about one of his own sermons where he realised he'd gone very quickly from the text to the life of the people without dwelling enough on what the Bible was in that passage was telling us about God. And if we can get clear what it's telling us about God, then it will carry the freight into our own lives. I think we notice three things in this passage about the life of Jesus and therefore about the life of his church. And I want to say up front, these things are not sentimental. You're not going to find <laughs> these three points on a, a, a sort of sentimental card. But I think they're in the passage. Firstly is the rawness of betrayal. The rawness of betrayal. Secondly, the risk of love. And thirdly, the reality of Satan. Rawness of betrayal, risk of love, reality of Satan. Firstly, the rawness of betrayal. Now, just again, try and picture this scene for a moment. Jesus and his disciples are in an upper room. It's the evening. They're having this great feast, the Passover. They're enjoying good company and great food. They've been traveling and working together closely for three years. These guys have been on the journey with Jesus. They've, they've now recently sensed and seen how much danger he is in. They've even warned him not to go to Jerusalem, but he has insisted on coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And he's, he's made it clear more than once that his hour is coming and now it has come. That the hour, the climax of all that he's been working towards is about to happen. And he has told them that it's going to result in him going to the cross. But for some reason, they just can't accept or understand that yet. And here in this very room, Jesus himself has just washed their feet their revered Lord and teacher, has stooped to do, to do the lowliest of servant jobs, taking off his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist, filling a basin with water and going from one to the other, washing their feet with his own hands. And then he's applied it to them. If you look back up at verse 14 and 15, Jesus makes the lesson very, very clear. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In other words, Jesus is telling them this is how the Christian community is to be characterised. We are to be people of the towel. People who are quick to serve one another, especially in the humblest tasks. People who are, who are actually dread the thought of status and being important and being lauded and praised by others. No, no, we've got to be people of the towel. And he says in verse 17 that such conduct actually pleases God to the extent that God blesses it. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And blessing is the language of happiness, the good life. This is the way to live the really good life is to be a person of the towel, to be just like Jesus Christ himself who 
came to the world to be a ransom, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. But right away, off the back of that extraordinary episode of the foot washing, Jesus now changes tack and he introduces this raw note of betrayal. Look at verse 18 again with me. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Now, isn't this chilling? Right there in the heart of this most intimate scene of companionship and friendship when Jesus has just washed all of their feet including Judas's and he's just taught them about the countercultural nature of life together right then Jesus warns that not all of the group are truly with him even though they all look like they are he says it's a fulfillment of scripture he quotes Psalm 41 verse 9 uh, let me read the full verse from from the psalm it says even my close friend Someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Now, that is painful, isn't it? In fact, we might say there's nothing like it. That quote from the psalm shows an attitude of a friend, so-called, that is the opposite from that represented in the washing of a person's feet. Sharing the bread is a gesture of intimacy, closeness, friendship. Turning against the person, though, is using that relationship to serve self wounding the other person in the process. Now, I just wonder what the atmosphere in the room was like. You know, Jesus has just done this shocking thing of washing their feet and now he's, he's, he's started talking about betrayal. And people are still eating and drinking, but they're all quietly thinking to themselves, what does he mean by this? And as they look at Jesus, they can see that he's actually clearly distressed. Verse 21 says that he was troubled in spirit. This word means that he was badly shaken up. He was deeply distressed. Now, we've seen this word before in John's Gospel, actually. It's a powerful word, an emotional word. It's the same word that John used twice to describe how Jesus felt at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He was distressed at the intruder death into his world. It's the same word that John will use in the next chapter, chapter 14, to describe how the disciples feel when they learn about the imminent death of Jesus. And he says to them, don't be distressed, don't be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's that feeling. It's that gut-wrenching internal feeling that you feel deep inside and perhaps, depending on what you're like, it may you may be the kind of person, it just stops you eating. You lose your appetite when you have this feeling. Other people find it makes them eat more. But it's deeply troubled. And there follows the most extraordinary scene because Jesus knows that Judas is going to do that to him. Verse 21, he says, it's solemn, solemn statement. Amen, amen. One of you is going to betray me. And in verse 22, they, they just stare at each other in disbelief. They can't believe what he's just said. They kind of can't comprehend it. They're stunned into silence. And then there's a really interesting little episode, verse 23 and 24. And it's a silent communication between Simon Peter and another disciple who isn't named. They clearly know each other well. There's, there's some eye contact. There's some kind of nonverbal communication. Perhaps there's a nod. Verse 23, 
The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him and Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Actually, the original text doesn't say that Peter said this. A more literal translation would be he gestured to this disciple to ask Jesus who it was he was referring to. He may not have even spoken. There's some kind of contact and then there's a, you know, ask him. And then there's this little drama with this disciple who's close to Jesus, leaning up close and a whisper that nobody else hears. And Jesus then, speaking softly back, reveals the identity of the betrayer. He says, I'm going to dip a piece of bread in, into the sauce and I'm going to give it to him. And this is something that hosts would do. It's a gesture of friendship and of hospitality and of welcome to, to, to give the bread. And because the others haven't heard Jesus, they didn't think anything of it when he gave the bread to Judas. They just thought he was being what he was normally like. And of course, everyone instinctively trusts Judas. He's one of the guys, isn't he? In fact, Judas is so reliable, he's even trusted to keep the money back. Nobody suspects Judas. And even when he goes out into the night in verse 30, no one seems to suspect anything. No one except Jesus and his unnamed confidant. And yet, Judas is going out to sell his lord and master for 30 pieces of silver. A betrayal that will lead directly to Jesus' agony and suffering and cross. I wonder how much of that Judas knew he was doing at the time. But isn't the worst of it that this betrayal comes from a close friend, from one who shared Jesus' bread? So the first lesson we learn about relationships in the life of Jesus and therefore in his church is that betrayal happens and it is raw. It's deeply troubling. Now, friends, this point is not sentimental. I think this text is given to us to prepare us for some of the worst sins of Christian community. We will not end here, thankfully, but we need to dwell on it for a moment. At some point in your journey of faith, Another Christian, or more than one, will betray you. And it is deeply troubling. You can't make sense of it. It certainly hurts like nothing else. And the bruises are very deep. And they hurt for a very long time. That betrayer may be a genuine Christian, brother or sister, who is acting badly for one reason or another. Or they may actually be a fake Christian who's someone who's masquerading as a believer. But either way, their conduct is motivated by serving themselves, not washing the other person's feet, but serving self. So the question is, how will you respond when it happens? How will you respond when it happens? I think this passage is given to us so that we will not give up. If even the spotless son of God had a Judas in his life, if even Jesus Christ had one out of 12 was a Judas, then why should we expect any better treatment? The servants are not greater than their master. And let's just pause as well and look in the mirror for a moment and we'll probably see some things that are not that comfortable because every Christian is both like and unlike Judas. Every Christian we're like Judas in that we all sin, and every sin against Jesus Christ is actually a betrayal. Now look at this, Judas' sin 
seems particularly grievous, doesn't it? Because he wasn't just part of the crowd going along with the baying mob. He wasn't part of the Roman regime, just a part of the system. He wasn't part even of the Jewish religious establishment, but he's a close personal friend of Jesus. But you know what? In the same way, once we are Christians, we no longer relate to Jesus as our creator or our judge, but as a personal friend, as our older brother, as our spouse. And if a judge makes a law and you disobey it, then it's a violation. But if a friend solemnly asks you to do something and you go against her wishes, that is not only a violation of your word, it is a personal betrayal. Non-Christians sin against the Lord in his relationship to them as their creator and king. They owe him obedience because he made them and owns them. But you know what? Christians who sin against their Lord sin in their relationship to him as redeemer and brother and friend. Our sins are much more grievous. We're doubly obligated to him for he sacrificed for us and we know it. And we have entered into a personal family relationship with him. So all the sins of a Christian are personal betrayals. All the sins of a Christian are personal betrayals of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, can you see this about yourself and your sin? We should weep over our sins bitterly and forsake them heartily because we know Jesus so intimately. We're all a bit like Judas. But we're also unlike him. Because ultimately we read elsewhere in the Bible that although Judas was bitterly upset by what happened and he was, he was, he was grieved, he did not really repent. He didn't really change. He was full of remorse, but it didn't lead him to true heart change. It just led him to a bitter act of self-destruction. If you're a true Christian, don't be condemned and, and, and destroy yourself over this. Hear, hear the challenge of the word and come back to Jesus who will welcome you with open arms. The servant is not greater than the master. If the path to glory for Jesus was through betrayal and suffering, then why should we get an easy ride? Of course, that's what we want, but it's not what we get. And you know what? The grace, the glory, it all comes through the pain and the suffering in God's economy. Now, I said earlier that we learned three things about relationship. These points, by the way, get progressively shorter. The, the first one was about the rawness of betrayal. Uh, but we're not going to stop there uh, because in this passage, we also see one of the great depictions of friendship. And so my second point is the risk of love, the risk of love. Back to that upper room. Let's just go in there again with the sound of people chatting and the smell of freshly baked bread and grilled lamb and just a hint of bitter herbs. And you've got a sense of it now and you can hear the people eating and drinking and talking. But now we're just going to picture for a moment in our mind's eye the seating arrangement. Because the traditional position for Jewish people celebrating the Passover was to recline. Not to sit upright as we often do in the West. But to, to, to recline at the table. Because this is the dining position of free people. And... The exodus was when they were liberated and made free. And so in the Passover, they remember that they are free people, slaves, servants. They stand by, but free people recline when they're eating. And there's one guy in this arrangement around this table who is so close to Jesus that he can actually lean back on him and whisper in his ear. He can lean and touch 
him physically. And Jesus relates to this guy out of a warm, open, affectionate relationship. Just look at how he's referred to there in verse 23. It says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now, there's clearly some special closeness, some affinity with this man, and readers have wondered who it was for hundreds of years. And of course, there's been much speculation. The traditional view is that this is John himself and that he's the author of the gospel. And if it was him, then he may have been a young lad, younger than all the others. He may have been a cousin of Jesus on one side of the family, on Mary's side. And it seems that Jesus had a soft spot for this guy. There was a special friendship and there seems to be no evidence that the other people resented it. He was only a lad after all, but he was, whoever he was, he was close enough to ask the question and he was close enough to get an answer. Now, the thing is, we don't know who he is because he's anonymous. I suspect that he is the author, but he's not written this book to draw attention to himself. He wants it all to draw attention to Jesus. And the reason why I think it's the author is that there are things shared in the passage that only he could have known. Things that don't come in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Only John has them. There's an intimate eyewitness element to this particular text. And the point here is not that we can try and figure out whether it's John or not. That would be idle speculation. The point is that Jesus had close friends. Jesus, in his humanity, had close friends. Some were closer than others. Now, why is that significant? It's because love is risky. You take a risk. If you open yourself to another person, if you invest your heart in them, you spend your time with them, you share your feelings, your deepest thoughts and fears, you become intimate, then you are vulnerable to them. Tom Wright, who's a leading New Testament scholar, writes these words. In the middle of the picture, we have Jesus flanked by love and betrayal. Perhaps it is always like this. Perhaps they always go together in this life. The joy and the agony, the intimacy and the knife in the back. Maybe Jesus' openness to the one meant that he was bound to be open to the other as well. Maybe it is like that for us too. Now we have to grasp this, I think. The intimacy of love and the hurt of betrayal are linked together, aren't they? You can't enjoy love without the risk of being betrayed by somebody. But once you have been betrayed, the great temptation is that you will then harden your heart and cut off love. They won't get me again. And this too is a great danger in Christian community. Because where else in the world do you get such potential for harm and misunderstanding as in the local church? This is not a group of people who are gathered together because they're naturally friends. It's not a group of people like the rugby club or the football club who are gathered around a shared interest. The local church is full of different personality types. People from all sorts of social backgrounds, different styles of communication. In our church, Many, many different cultures, which is amazing. So in that context, think about the risk of causing offence, the risk of hurting feelings, and yes, the risk of being badly let down and disappointed by those who you'd hoped more from. 
Now, some people have been hurt by their church and walked away from Jesus. If that's you, let me ask you, encourage you to stop looking at those flawed Christians and look at the saviour who died for them. Look at what he endured at the hands of sinful men for your sake. I've quoted this quote a couple of times before at Grace Church. It's, it's so powerful, I want to say it again. Something that my father often said, and I believe originated in the writings of a, a Christian counsellor called Dan Allender. Allender said, if you cut the nerve to pain, you will cut the nerve to love as well. If you cut the nerve to pain, you'll cut the nerve to love at the same time. We don't want pain, we don't like betrayal, we don't want those hurt feelings, we don't want to be deeply troubled in our spirit, we never ever want to feel like that again. I understand it. So there's a tendency, temptation, put up a wall, harden the heart, to say somewhere deep inside that they will never do that to me again. I'm cutting that nerve. But the problem is if you do that, you cut the nerve to love as well. And what we see in the life of Jesus Christ, God's eternal son and our saviour, is that he was open to the risk of love. He was open to friendship with those 12, even knowing that one of them betrayed him. And Jesus was troubled by that. He didn't just wash over him. Jesus was deeply troubled because he knew he was going to be betrayed. He didn't look forward to those feelings one bit. And there's, so there's no shame in being deeply troubled by this. It's what you get when you're a foot washer. When you're a person of generous love, you are open to deep friendship and you're open to the wounds that only friendship can bring. Now, I said earlier that we learned three things about relationship in the life of Jesus and the life of his church. And I also said that those things aren't sentimental. <laughs> I think you might agree with me by now. The first was the rawness of betrayal and the second was the risk of love. And the third one is a strange one, is the reality of Satan. Because there's a third element to this story, it's quite subtle, it's not essential, but it is there and we mustn't overlook it and we mustn't be embarrassed by it, even those who live in the West in a, in a naturalist, materialist culture. It's the reality of Satan. See, the Bible teaches that there are dark spiritual forces that are deeply opposed to Jesus Christ and his church and have been from the very beginning. These are, are not just systemic forces like systemic racism or, or systemic injustice they're actually personal they're referred to as spirits one of them is referred to as satan which means the accuser uh, sometimes called the devil paul writes in one of his letters to a church our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and the powers and the rulers of this dark world. You see, there, there's something in, this, in the spiritual structure behind the scenes of the world that we live in, that there are, are strongholds, or, or authorities, principalities, powers that are organised to oppose Jesus Christ, to oppress people, to suppress and crush human life, and to do everything they can not to let the church flourish. And missionaries who travel across cultural boundaries and sometimes geographic boundaries into remote places frequently and this is this is all through the, the literature of, of the missionary movement frequently find that there is strong spiritual opposition when they first come with the message and they feel like they're a little beam of light like a little torch 
in a vast dark cavern and things are pressing in on them and they're often spiritual um, struggles that have to take place to push back the darkness until the light of Jesus can shine out. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So the Christian community, as well as being aware of the rawness of betrayal and the risk of love, needs to be aware of the reality of Satan and not be fooled and not ignore it, but to take it seriously and live accordingly. The Christian community needs to be aware of the divisive and undermining nature of Satan in our relationships. Back to our text. Uh, verse 2, this is, we didn't read this today, but we read it last week. Verse 2 says, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So there's some kind of influence that the devil has to prompt, to suggest, to influence a person's thinking and feelings. To it, It's not control, but it's, it's influence. There's a prompting here to betray Jesus. See, the devil is in the background of this passage. Then he comes back again in verse 27. This is quite spooky. Verse 27 says, As soon as Judas took the bread from Jesus, Satan entered into him. Now, what does that mean? We don't really know. He seems to, uh, he doesn't seem to be foaming at the mouth all of a sudden and, and shouting out as some demon-possessed people are in the Gospels. He's not needing to be exorcised but there's certainly a, an increasing influence of the devil on Judas and here John uses the word Satan the, the accuser this is someone now who is going to bring a charge bring an accusation against Jesus and that will lead to Jesus being killed so in the background we don't have a lot of information we must be aware not to speculate too much but definitely in the background spiritual forces have a direct influence and the overall message of the Bible is clear Satan is out to destroy people he hates the gospel and he hates the church and he will do anything in his power to damage it to undermine its progress to wreck its relationships hence the rawness of betrayal in fact, somebody wrote to me yesterday and, and made a very wise observation. If a church is being battered, it must mean it is doing something right. If a church is going through struggles and hardships and difficulties, if it seems like it's being battered, then perhaps we're doing something right. Let's not be taken by surprise or caught off guard. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. John Stott a great uh, Anglican minister and uh, commentator on the Bible, in his book on the book of Acts, his commentary, talks about three old strategies which Satan has in the book of Acts. And you read the story of the early church and there are these three strategies. And he says they're as old as the church itself and, and Satan hasn't really come up with any new ideas since. Uh, those strategies are opposition from the, 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 the city authorities or from the those in power, the kind of state opposition to Christianity. Then there is grumbling and dissent and, in, and complaining in the ranks of the church itself, which comes up in Acts 6 over the distribution of food. But the third one is the fomenting of tension and dissent and disagreement and disunity among the leaders of a church. And so all these three things, according to Stott, and I think it's borne out by the book of Acts, are strategies that the devil uses to harm the work of the church. Opposition from outside, opposition from within, and disunity among the leadership. We've got to be, we've got to be on our guard for this.
Now, Jesus, to finish on an encouraging note, is not surprised by any of this. Have a look back to what he says in verse 19. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. This is almost a claim to divine knowledge. And we know Jesus is the son of God. It's the kind of thing God says about himself in the Old Testament. I'll tell you now before it happens, so that you know when it does happen, I am God. Jesus says here, I, I am who I say I am. Verse 20, and this is a great place for us to finish today, friends. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. What does he mean? He means I'm sending you, you, you disciples, I'm sending you out into the world with my message of joy and love, the gospel. And whoever accepts you, the ones I'm sending, they accept me, they accept the Father. This is how Jesus' mission goes forward. Ordinary, flawed people. People who mess up all the time, who aren't very confident, who aren't very articulate. People who don't know their Bible as well as they should. These people genuinely bring other men and women, boys and girls, to God. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, Jesus says. So in spite of the reality of Satan, Jesus isn't fooled and he's not surprised either. He knows opposition is coming. And in spite of the risks we take in love and in spite of the rawness and the feelings we will have of betrayal, there is great confidence here that Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world and nothing can overcome his church ultimately. He will use it to draw people to the Father. And he will use it this summer to draw people from all nations through MIO. That's going to be our prayer in a moment. This is how the mission goes forward. So let's beware of these things in relationship and perhaps spend a little time in reflection and repentance. Let's pray. Loving Lord, we are stunned into silence when we think of what you endured at the hands of Judas and when we think of how at times we are like Judas and we ask today forgive us our sins which are many but we thank you for that word of encouragement and promise that says if anyone confesses their sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't just want forgiveness, Lord, we want cleansing. We want to be those who are pure, holy and wholehearted for you, devoted. And we want to be people of the towel, people who accept your challenge to live according to the pattern you gave us, not to use relationships to serve ourselves, but to serve others. And Lord, as you taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Lord, we are so... Um, limited and vulnerable and finite and and, and we, we get things wrong we ask that you protect us not just us individually but us as a church as Grace Church Manchester that you'd keep us united in our hearts and minds even in this season of separation and that you bring us together soon we ask in Jesus name Amen